Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. What it means to struggle and uh, how that might look in your journey and in your life and what's happening with you this morning and, and all of that. I, I, I grew up in uh, an environment that taught me that if I were to uh, confess some things and believe some things, that certain things were going to happen. And maybe you grew up that way too. And so the kind of my understanding, and, and I'll take responsibility for it, my understanding was that at some point, uh, and then for me, well, I was nine years old. It was Halloween night, uh, nine years old, that I went forward and gave my heart to Christ. And, and, and I had an expectation because I prayed that prayer. I confessed my sins. I, you know, believed in Christ, invited him into my heart. And sort of the way I was told it was going to work is that instantly I was going to feel differently and instantly some things were going to be different. In fact, I was not, going to, uh, not only going to feel this overwhelming kind of sense of peace, uh, but I was also going to be empowered to not want to do anything wrong anymore. I, I really wasn't going to want to do wrong things anymore. And when I would really kind of be honest about that as I got older and, you know, went through my teenage years and tried to figure out how that all worked, if I said, well, you know, I, I don't know that I felt all that different. I grew up in church. I, I don't know that at nine years old I had like this, you know, very scarred past to be relieved from. Uh, I just didn't feel all that different. And then as I struggled through those years and I, did, I still felt temptation and I still struggled to do the right thing and I still struggled to understand it all, I, I would hear things like this, well, if, you don't, if, you, if you're still struggling, if you don't get it, maybe you didn't get it in the first place. And I've shared this with you before. I, I, I kind of got into a pattern in my teenage years of just going to the altar and going to the altar and, you know, confessing again and trying to get it again. And, and really, if you were to just analyze that as I look back at it, I, I just didn't want to struggle. I, I wanted to give it to God and I wanted God to do something to me and in me that caused me not to be filled with all that self-doubt and all that worry and all that anxiety and, and temptation. I, I just wanted to be made whole. And there were plenty of opportunities. There were plenty of preachers preaching that that's how it worked. That you just confessed it and received it and believed it. And then you just got on with being a great disciple of Jesus Christ. And so I, I just think as we gather here this morning, there's, there's probably a reality that there's far more of us who, who really struggle at some level struggle to understand what it is that, you know, kind of defines us, who we are, what our self-image is, who we are in Christ. I, I would guess that if we just, you know, had true confession, there aren't very many of us that feel like we're really crushing this discipleship thing. There's not very many of us that feel like we're really getting it all right, that it's, that it's, still a struggle for us. We're still fighting the battle. 
So this morning, we're, we're going to talk about some people. In fact, we're going to talk about three people. We're going to talk about Paul, and we're going to talk about Charles Wesley, and we're going to talk about Corey Asbury. And, and we're going to talk about these three because each of them seem to articulate very well this struggle, this process that we're in, and how then God has broken through in significant ways in each of their lives to inspire them to write and to share the story of what's happening in that struggle. And so as you think about that and you think about where you are in that process, then maybe, you know, you could recognize that this struggle has been going on for a long, long time. In fact, if you really analyzed it and you kind of dug into it, in the, in the big capital C church over all of the years of its existence, right at the center of the Reformation, and we've kind of been talking about that these last few weeks, right at the center of the Reformation is this question. How does God change a human being? What happens in the life of a person as they encounter Jesus Christ, as they confess their sins and believe, what happens? And is it the same for everybody? Is it a formula? Can we figure it out so that it looks the same for everybody? Is this grace, this God, this power that's manifest in our life, does it, does it take into account different personalities? Do people struggle in different ways? Are, are, are we all sort of wired differently and therefore God customizes everything? Because I don't know if you're paying attention, but what the church does is it simplifies, it, it distills everything into a doctrine or a dogma in which now everyone looks at it and says, okay, this is supposed to work for me in this specific way. And so the, the, the reformers, particularly in the Reformation, are, are struggling. They're, they're, they're writing, and, and, and as they put forward these crazy ideas, crazy ideas like Martin Luther saying, your salvation is by faith alone. You don't need all of the other things. You, you don't need the confessional or the priest or absolute or you know a, a penance or you don't need any of that stuff you need faith in god we need the authority of scripture and you know and, and so you know and then as we get past those spaces of the early reformers we get into a conversation about grace and how grace works and what that means and what that looks like and so how does it work how does it work for you have you come to this moment, this cataclysmic moment in which God intersects life and then everything's different, everything changes? We certainly believe in that moment of salvation, that moment when we offer ourselves to Christ, when we confess our sins and we receive forgiveness. This is more about what happens next. It's more about what it means to grow in grace, to, to follow along in discipleship, to become more and more Christ-like, to bear the fruits of righteousness, to bear the fruits of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness. And let's be honest. It seems like there's a whole lot of people within the umbrella of Christendom who say they've had this moment, this experience, but they don't seem to be maturing in love. They don't seem to be growing. They don't seem to be getting sweeter, nicer, more loving, more kind, more infectious, more charismatic. 
and something's wrong. Something's not quite catching on. And then what happens to us is we beat ourselves up. We beat ourselves up in the process because we're not achieving, we're not living, we're not doing. And there's always someone saying, oh, I'm crushing it. There's always somebody within the context of Christendom telling you how well they're doing and all of their Christ-likeness. Enough so that people feel like, well, I can't ever really talk about how I feel about myself and my journey and my walk with Christ because evidently some people really are getting it all right. They really were completely transformed and God really is blessing them up and down and they are just bearing the fruits of righteousness and the fruits of the Spirit. The struggle is not new. Paul, in such a frank way, a, a guy who had done the dogma and the doctrine, but then opens up in Romans 7, and, and he talks with this very blunt honesty. See if any of it sounds familiar to you. Romans seven fifteen. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know what good itself does, I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil that I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil's right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in the law of God, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. So, so Paul's speaking some things that we probably understand, maybe a little bit of a tongue twister, and we kind of don't understand, and it sounds like, you know, a little bit like the devil made me do it. And, but I think what he's articulating is this reality. That for most of us who have come into saving relationship with Jesus Christ, we we're still trying to figure out how that all works out. And, and, and though we say, I'm not going to feel anxious or depressed, or I'm not going to think those thoughts, or I'm not going to be unkind, or I'm not going to be lustful, or whatever it is that we're speaking about and thinking about and struggling with, still there's something else that keeps pulling at us. And I think it leads us into this space in which we just wonder how God must feel about these imperfect human beings who walked into this relationship with God and goes to church and prays and reads the Bible and tries to figure it out and tries to do what's right, but still has so many moments of failure and weakness. So as Paul speaks and talks about it, he He's trying to understand how God intersects human weakness. He's trying to understand how it all works, how God deals with the imperfection and diversity of human personalities and need and what it is all like. He begins to throw around two very powerful words, uh, flesh and spirit. And so uh, William Barclay, in writing about how he uses these words, writes these words to us. 
Over and over again, he uses the phrase katasarka, that literally means according to the flesh. Sometimes that just means looking at things from a human point of view, but he has his own way of using this word, sarks or flesh. When he's talking about the life of Christians, he talks about the days when we were in sarkai, when we were in the flesh, and he speaks of those who walk according to the flesh as distinct from those who live the Christian life. What he really means is human nature in all of its weakness, and he means human nature in all of its vulnerability to sin. The flesh is the lower side of human nature. And when he gives us a list of the works of the flesh in Galatians 5.19, he includes the bodily and the sexual sins, but he also includes idolatry, hatred, wrath, strife, heresies, envy, murder. To him, the flesh is not just a physical thing, but a spiritual thing. But he also uses the word spirit. In fact, in this single chapter, it occurs no less than 20 times. It has a definite Old Testament background. In Hebrew, it's the word ruach. And and behind it, there's two basic ideas. It's not only the word for spirit, but for wind. It always contains this idea of power, the power of a rushing, mighty wind. And so Paul is now setting us up for this understanding. He's setting us up for this understanding of this weakness of the flesh and this power of the Spirit. And how these two things are going to, even when we have committed our life to Christ, how we still have these flesh things that we're still in the flesh, we're still walking around in that reality, but how the Spirit now is beginning to interact. And so the story goes on. He's not ending it there. He tells us in Romans chapter 8, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because... Through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. So He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who don't live according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the fleshly desires, but those who live according to the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Now, Paul doesn't leave us in that place. Let me read you one more little passage, and then I just want to talk to you for a minute. Romans 8, 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our body. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for, we do not, for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the minds of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him and have been called according to His purpose. So, so I just want you to take a breath for a minute. That's a lot of theology in a very short amount of time. So let's take a breath and think about it together for a moment. You see, this walk of faith is a struggle. And somewhere we've been told that if we just made this decision about who God is and about confessing our sins, that that we'd be okay, that God would do something to us. And I'll be honest, I wish that was how it worked. I I wish God just sort of swooped in and did all the work. But it seems like as I wait on God to do the work, 
that I continue to struggle, that I don't quite get there, that I'm not quite in the right place at the right time. And so then I, I, I was told this, maybe you were told this growing up, you need to do some things. You need to enter into some things. So why don't you pray and read the Bible and maybe fast and, 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 and do some of those things. And if you do those things, that'll equip you to get out there and to live the life you've been invited to live. And I just want to stop for a minute and say, how's that working out? Because it seems to me that what God is inviting us to do is to have a different idea. And that idea is that when we are forgiven, when God uh, brings us in, when he cleanses us and, and he begins to walk that journey and, and, and we understand and we get a walk in relationship with him, that he's inviting us to act differently, to practice things differently, to actually practice living a Christ-like life. And we won't necessarily be good at it, but we can pay attention to it. That we can get up in the morning and say, hey, today I'm going to focus on being a loving person. And I'm going to think about what that looks like. How can I be loving to this person or to that person or to this person? How do I behave in loving ways today? And guess what? We're going to fail. We're going we're gonna to get up and we're going to try. If, if we just said we're going to practice the fruits of the Spirit, we're going to practice love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and, and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. If we just said, I'm going to do one of those every week, I'm going to focus, I'm just going to get up this week and I'm going to do this, I'm going to practice it, I'm going to try it, I'm going to exercise, I'm going to get stronger in it, and I'm going to ask God to come with me and empower me and, and help me notice and help me see, I'm going to grow in this process. I wonder what might change for us. As opposed to, I just had a moment of decision and then I was figuring it was all going to get taken care of. But it's not really how it's working for me. I'm really struggling. And as I struggle in my faith, I start to question the power of God to do all the things that I was told he was going to do. Don't you see how Paul struggled? <laughs> and how he said, you know, well, the Spirit's helping me, but I don't even know how I ought to pray. I'm just going to get up every morning and I'm going to work to be more Christ-like. I'm going to work at the fruit. I'm going to practice some things. I'm not just going to make a decision about it. I'm going to work in it. I'm going to walk in it. We're in good company. It's not just Paul who, who articulates at such a deep level the theological underpinnings of this whole idea. Charles Wesley, one of the great reformers of the 18th century, struggled incredibly. In fact, one of the most fascinating things about John and Charles Wesley, who had such an incredible impact on the world, is that both of them, though raised in a, the home of an Anglican priest raised in the very heart of Christianity. Uh, the story of family life for the Wesleys is this powerful image. Um, John and Wesley's mother, Susanna, uh, she spent an hour a day with each of her 11 children, tutoring them in the ways of God. If, I mean, we're talking about kids who had advantages that we feel convicted that we didn't offer to our own kids. But both John and Charles grew up in this idea of you just made a decision and God fixed everything. And they both struggled. They struggled to feel like they were okay with God. They struggled to feel like that as they went through their daily lives and failing and worries and, and all the things that went with being young men, 
they, 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 they felt like they weren't pleasing God and things weren't going well. When the two of them got to Oxford, they, they said, we're going to double down on this thing. We're gonna f-. They founded a little group called the Holy Club, and they got up extra early every morning, and they prayed, and they read Scripture in the original languages. It was very strident and stringent. In fact, because they were so strident about these things, they were, they were derisively called the Methodist. And so they, they went and visited the poor. They visited the prisons. They believed that if they invested themselves in these, these things, it would make them feel differently. But it really didn't make them feel differently. They didn't feel reassured. They struggled. They didn't quite get it. They felt lost. They felt so lost, in fact, that when they graduated from Oxford, the two of them made their way to a, a, a little mission project in the colony of Savannah, Georgia. They decided that what, what would make them feel better is if they left all the comforts of home and they became missionaries and they went and evangelized the Native Americans uh, residing in North America. And they landed in Savannah, Georgia and spent some time there. And, and that was a catastrophic failure. It ended up, I won't even go into all the story, but it ended up with, you know, the sheriff trying to arrest them and them escaping to get back to England. And, and so they ended up back in London, both of them devastated at the journey they were on, willing to sacrifice almost anything, but not feeling that God really was speaking. And then we're told that Charles, in reading Luther's introduction to the book of Galatians, suddenly one night, May of 1738, he senses something significant happening to him. He senses that God is speaking in a new way in him. He wrote, at midnight, I gave myself to Christ, assured that I was safe, whether sleeping or waking. I had the continual experience of his power to overcome all temptation. And I confess with joy and surprise that he was able to do exceedingly, abundantly more than all I could ever ask or think. He further journaled, I now found myself at peace with God and rejoiced in the hope of loving Christ. I saw that by faith I stood... We're told that a couple of days later, he began to write a hymn. Scholars believe it was the hymn you just sang. These are the words that came from him as he described that experience. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. He left his Father's throne above so free, so infinite is grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled and died for Adam's race. Tis mercy all immense and free, for, oh, my God, it found out me. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eyes diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine, bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Charles Wesley would go on in his lifetime to write between eight and 9,000 hymns. 
we're told that he wrote 10 lines of verse every day for 50 years and on average completed a, about three hymns a week. During his life, he never heard his fellow Methodists sing any of his hymns. Methodism at the time was still a part of the Church of England and it didn't officially approve the singing of hymns until 1820, 32 years after Charles died. So let's stop for a minute. <laughs> Do you get what he discovered? Do you get what he's writing about? Amazing love. What he's writing about is, I struggled, I fought, I tried, I believed, I confessed, I read, I prayed, I did acts of service, I did everything that I knew how to do. And I felt bad, I felt incomplete, I felt insufficient, I, I didn't like who I was, I didn't like, I didn't feel like God loved me, I didn't feel worthy. And then I discovered that God loves me in all my imperfection. He didn't expect me to be changed in a moment. He expected me to need to learn and struggle and practice and try and fail and get up again. He never expected me to have it all figured out. He never expected that, that, that one size would fit all, that every single human being would have the same experience of God and, and that they would struggle in similar ways. And he didn't, he didn't think any of that. He thought... Here's how the God of the universe will respond to your story, to where you are, to what's happening to you with love. It's what Paul discovered. Paul discovered that however he struggled, wherever he went, whatever was happening to him, whatever he understood, whatever he didn't understand, there was a God who interceded for him, who, who went to the Father with groans that can't be uttered, <laughs> that promised to be for us and not against us. Do you feel that? This is a story of love. Do you feel that? Corey Asbury is a young songwriter, and he has a little different story to tell. In fact, I, I, I would like for him to really tell you in his own words. He was going through some big changes back in 2017, and by his own admission, he had drifted away from God. and. And he was really disenchanted with God and disenchanted with the church and, and felt like the things that God had promised, the things that he had been taught to believe that God would provide for him had fallen through. He, he had come to a place where he just didn't really see the truth of what he had been taught about God. And so he started on a journey. And that journey was to just kind of figure out who God really was. Listen to what he writes. I felt... I feel like this song is a culmination of the latter half of my life. So much goes into it, and a lot of it has to do with my family, my own upbringing with my own dad. I think Reckless Love is a song about the father's love, and I think so many of us, especially in this generation, are so unfamiliar with the father's love because we had so many skewed ideas of what he's like because of what our own dads were like. I know so many people, myself included, who grew up with a dad who wasn't perfect, to put it lightly. And because my dad wasn't perfect, I viewed God through the lens of my own dad. And I felt many times that God was angry or upset or disappointed in me, and I felt like I was letting him down. Towards the latter part of my life, maybe the last five or six years, it's kind of been a spin. It feels like I began to ask specific questions of the Father, like, what are you actually like? 
I've grown up with a picture that's probably pretty off, so could you show me what you're actually like? The Bible tells me you're kind, and you're tender, and you're good. And some of the things I've seen in the world in my own experience, they, they disagree with that idea. So I need you to reconcile that idea to my heart. I think a big part of that reconciliation was when our son was born about eight years ago. His name's Gabriel. He's our oldest. When I held him for the first time, it's like everything changed. You look into their eyes for the first time and you feel this ability and this capacity to love that you've probably never experienced before. It's a different thing. And I remember thinking about Gabriel. He's an infant. He can't do anything. And I remember thinking, man, there's nothing this little boy could ever do to make me love him less. And it was through that experience that I began to see the father rightly. That's the way he looks at me. I don't have to earn his love. I don't have to do something to deserve his affection in his heart. He just simply adores me because I'm his son and I'm made in his image. And that changed everything for me. And so Asbury sat down and he began to write the words... He said, ultimately, I could only come up with one title, and that was reckless love. Reckless not as in careless, (laughs) reckless as in extravagant. In a moment, we're going to close, and we're going to sing that song. I'm going to read you the words before we do, but here's the thing that I want you to pick up. Charles Wesley struggled with the whole idea of what he had been taught about God versus his spiritual experience. Corey Asbury is talking about what happens to us when the trauma in our life, when the damage that's done, when, when somehow we got broken inside and we have a hard time relating to who God is or how He could love us. And I'm guessing that on this Sunday morning, there's a significant number of people out there who you're just, you just don't feel okay. You just don't feel like God embraces who you are and where you are and what the struggle looks like and you shouldn't be still struggling with this and you should be over this and you shouldn't have that attitude and you shouldn't deal with this anxiety and that depression should have gone away and you've surrendered that pain and you've forgiven that hurt and all that stuff. What I'd love for you to hear this morning is that God understands There was never a promise that in a single moment your whole spiritual life would be mapped and changed and transformed. It's going to be a struggle. We have to practice. We have to practice it more than just reading the Bible and and, and praying. We have to actually put the fruits of the Spirit to work in our lives, and we have to get better at them. But as we travel this imperfect road, we must Always understand that the attitude of the Father towards you on any given day, your best day, your worst day, is that He loves you, He loves you, He loves you, He loves you. You're His child, He lifts you, He embraces you, He pours out His reckless love on you to the point that when that realization hits you, all you can really say, as can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's love. Died he for me, who caused his pain for me, who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Listen, we're going to sing these words from Corey Asbury. Let them soak in. They're raw. 
they're coming from somebody that lived their whole life and finally just walked away from Christ just because it didn't all add up. If that's where you are, I want you to remember that this is a story of love. And God meets you in the place where you're hurting. He meets you in the place where you're broken. He meets you in the place of your trauma. And he holds you and embraces you. And he's going to love you all through this journey of imperfection and trial and error and failure. He's going to just keep pouring out his love on you because that is who he is. And he cannot deny himself. God, would you help us? As we come to these closing moments and we gather around and sing these words. Maybe providentially you saw somewhere that this would be a really good Sunday for people to be at home in their own home to have a moment, a little privacy, so that the power of a loving God could sweep down and wash away whatever trauma, whatever hurt, whatever fear, whatever failure, whatever chronic problems, attitudes, habits might gnaw away at our inner world and cause us to feel less than or unworthy or unloved. Maybe it was how we were raised. Maybe we've suffered significant trauma. Maybe we're in the middle of it. Would you use these words to heal and to remind each person this is a story of love? I pray your grace, blessing, forgiveness, peace, and love over each person in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.